Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There's nothing wrong with advertising and paying for ads, but there's something more genuine in the connection you'll make with potential clients if they come to you because they agree with your philosophy and what you're saying and the way that you manage client accounts and the way that you talk about your investing process. Like if you get people to buy into what you do before they even become clients, they're going to be better clients and the process of onboarding them and explaining the service to them is going to be that much easier. Josh Brown is known as the reformed broker. Like free two-day shipping, cut-rate ETFs, and the $5 footlong, he is one of the great things to emerge from the 2008 financial crisis. The man now has more than a million Twitter followers and is all over LinkedIn, CNBC, and all manner of social media. Don't look now, but I bet you his cologne debuts soon enough. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by Health Warrior. Health Warrior Superfoods such as the protein muffin, 12 grams of protein, 6 grams of sugar, 5 grams of fiber, gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, vegan, non-GMO, and delicious. You can eat a muffin out of a cup. And in addition, you cannot miss the chia bar, which I adore. I love it in apple cinnamon, especially the new low-sugar variety. They have pumpkin seed bars. You can visit them at healthwarrior.com. And don't forget that free samples come with every order and free shipping on all orders of $45 and above. And by Elwood Thompson's, our favorite market in Virginia at the top of Carytown. I'm a big fan. I'm there almost every day drinking the Blanchard coffees. I love Chef Jeffrey's Sushi Creations. He'll make you a poke bowl. I love the seafood department, the hot food bar. Goodness, I love Indian Wednesdays, the Beat Cafe. Visit them at elwoodthompsons.com. And of course, at the very top of Carytown, hence the name. Joining me from NPR New York City is none other than bridge and tunnel phenom Joshua Brown. <laughs> He's known as the reform broker. He's the New York City financial advisor and CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, which is booming and has all sorts of personnel across the map and a great office right there by NPR New York in Bryant Park. He authored the books Backstage Wall Street, Clash the Financial Pundits. Um, he is a regular on CNBC. You can see him on Fast Money. He was named Investment News' 40 Under 40 list of top financial advisors. And now this is the Reform Broker blog in its glorious 10th year. And he has more than a million Twitter followers. Did I get everything right, Josh? Oh, my. I, I almost want to leave now. I, I feel like it can't get better. I like to kefell. Is that the is that the right verb? You've I'm not Ashkenazic. I wouldn't know. But I, I mean, not kefetch, right? That's kefelling on you. You've kefelled admirably. Josh, how are you? I'm doing great, man. It's it's great to be uh, it's great to be on the radio with you, Robin. You are now a three time guest on Full Disclosure, which I guess I must get you like a gift card to Applebee's or something. We I'm don't like, have a tie I'm in. Like Tom Hanks on SNL, <laughs> <laughs> sir. Um, I just want to say, and I know you don't want to be too navel gazy about this. Congrats on ten years of reinventing of Thank something you. that I keep going back to that essay that you wrote about your personal experience with the financial crisis and turning away from the kind of the the pump model and, and selling into actually being something authentic and, and thriving. I see your byline everywhere. I see you in magazine stories. I see you popping up on YouTube, podcasting. You're still humble enough to slum it and come on my podcast. Oh, How does it feel after 10 years? You know what? It's really been like, it's, it's the, the best thing that ever happened to me was discovering that I had a, a, some some kind of talent because... 
prior to writing on the blog uh, 10 years ago, I was just like another retail stockbroker kind of going nowhere. You know, the financial world was collapsing and um, I started writing about it and talking about it and being just be, like I had nothing to lose. So I was being very open and honest about my experiences. And the luckiest thing that could have ever happened to me was that there was an audience for it and the audience stuck around. And I've obviously evolved a lot from those days. And I think my writing's gotten better. Um, my career is obviously uh, taken off and people still come and, and want to hear what I have to say. So that's like the luckiest thing that could have possibly happened. And it did happen. And honestly, Robin, not a day goes by where I don't hit publish on the blog and say, this is just so cool that I get to do this. So to answer your, I guess to answer your question, um, I, I guess I feel, how do I feel? I feel very gratified. So I want to, I, when, when Hollywood comes knocking with grateful? the screenplay Wait, treatment. Is it, is it gratified or grateful? Grateful, this, grateful. You're not dead. I'm really grateful. You're, 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 you're gratified and you're, you're appreciative. I want to understand, like, let's, let's do it in our mind's eye. What was that moment of clarity, that moment of inception? I mean, maybe when a screenplay writer comes, imagines you on the LIRR with a can of Mad Dog, you know, bottle of Mad Dog or something like uh, calling your wife on a Motorola Razor phone or something like, I can't sell this stuff anymore. It's not right. So I think it was more gradual than that. Um, but I actually, I, so, uh, so in 2000, look, I, I'm somebody that always tried to do the right thing. And I think as a, as a retail stockbroker, you're, you're in a model, you're in a system that is fundamentally predisposed to not being the right thing for clients. It's just the conflicts are not on top of, they're baked into the center of the entire tableau. So you end up in a situation where even if you try to do the best that you can, um, you're just you're, you're not going to succeed for the people that you're working for. You can't. You have institutionalized conflicts within that business model. So, of course, nobody tells you that when you take the job and nobody's really telling you that while you're doing it. So you really do need like a crisis to happen to be able to like have all of the gauze ripped away and see what what's really going on underneath. And. Um, so, but that process wasn't like a one moment thing. It was really like just getting to the point where I was like, what am I doing? Um, so during the crisis, I basically stopped everything, stopped trading for clients, stopped all the nonsense, stopped listening to analysts. And as a result of that, I spent most of my time just trying to help them, uh, psychologically, but there's no money in that. If you're, you know, if you're commission, if you're a commission based broker, like no one's paying you to, uh, hold people's hand. Um, they pay you to sell products. And I refused to because I didn't think that anyone really knew the extent of what was going on. And of course, no one did. So, you know, after a few months of like just not bringing home any money, I'm talking to my wife and I explain the whole conundrum to her. I'm like, look, I, I can beef up my paycheck, but everything I would be doing in order to do that would be hurting people. And I'm not going to do it. And her comment, like somebody who really doesn't know anything about Wall Street, doesn't care that much about um, my industry, her outsider's comment and w was just like, she's just like, if if the only way for you to make money is to do the wrong thing for your clients, you have to leave this, you have to leave the business, you're in the wrong business. And nobody had ever like phrased it that succinctly and bluntly to me before. So um, that maybe that was as close as you get to like a moment where you're just like, okay, everything has to change now. And to that end, you put these in words that really I'll, I'll hit you over the head with it for one last time. Probably my favorite essay of, of decade. It's what you wrote, Fader Destiny, in September of 2013. Oh, which wow. I didn't know this backstory to you, but 
You said, in your darkest hour, the revelation sets in. This is all wrong. I realized that the retail brokerage business was inherently flawed if I couldn't go about it without hurting people or exposing them to undue risks in the name of grinding out a paycheck. And yeah. while this isn't always the reality, it certainly was throughout 2008 and 2009. Yeah, so I'm 30, 31 years old um, during the financial crisis, and I have um, I have a, a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a pregnant wife. I have a, a house with a mortgage. My friends are all losing their job. You know, my friends are at Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, and they're carrying they're carrying their stuff out in in cardboard boxes um, on on live television while I'm watching from a, a trading room, and it's just like it just it feels like everything is just going going away and everything's crumbling. So I'm laying on the couch. I have a laptop, and I just said, you know what? I gotta write. I gotta write about some of this stuff. And so my first post. What, you know, which is like unreadable to me now, but it was like probably something about venting, you know, I can't believe what's going on, et cetera. Um, I also happened to have gotten a gift. So I started writing right after Lehman Brothers went down um, in November of 08. And then like a couple of weeks later, Bernie Madoff um, confessed. <laughs> and that was just like, that was just like uh, the most incredible story that I could ever have imagined happening. And I was really, really involved with telling that story to people that were curious about what the heck is going on on Wall Street because um, I had understood, you know, from all the reports better than a lot of other people did what all of it meant and how it could have been possible. And so I think I did a really good job. I don't want to say covering that story because I'm not a journalist, but just like relating it to other things going on and explaining it to people. I think I did a really great job with that. And that kind of came along right at the right time. It gave me more to write about, more to talk about, and bring a unique perspective to. Josh, when did that actually hit a, a realization that you could make a living off this, when you could parlay your candor and kind of venting and being the persona of the reform broker into something that can help people and, and make you an income at the same time? So that was not until much later. Um, so so I'm, I'm, I'm writing about the markets, the industry. I'm telling the truth. In the meantime, I'm at a firm that itself is going out of business because they had borrowed money they couldn't pay back to try to expand right before the crisis hit. So, you know, like the compliance officer has to like pre-read what I'm blogging. And at a certain point, he's just like, you know what? I don't really even care. <laughs> so, so like it, it's not like I wrote the blog and I have this audience and all of a sudden I'm making – I'm not making any money as a result of it. But it feels good to be saying what I'm saying. It's not until I leave the brokerage side finally – in 2010 and joined forces with one of my heroes, Barry Ritholtz, who's now my current partner, and we start to take on clients together. It's not until then that I realize, you know, I have this audience and they are listening to what I'm saying and I'm making sense to them and they respect my point of view. Maybe some of them might even want to do business with us. Like that realization doesn't happen until I meet Barry and he's uh, in, a, in, a, in the opposite predicament that I'm in, he's got people knocking his door down, you know, because he called the crisis and then he called uh, the recovery, um, you know, from from 09, like almost flawlessly. He'll tell you he could never do it twice, but he was right on the money on both sides. So, Robin, he's got people banging his door down, but he's not a, an advisor. He's never been licensed. He's a chief strategist at an advisory firm. He doesn't talk to clients. He doesn't make recommendations. So... We joined forces and I just – I said, look, you have this huge fan base. They're probably getting terrible advice from, from hedge funds and from 
uh, wire houses and from scammy little broker dealers. Let's save all these people. Let's save your audience. We'll put them in, um, you know, good portfolios with realistic expectations. We'll do some financial planning for them and we'll rescue them. And he says, all right, let's do it. And it was like thunder in the bottle. It, it, it lightning in the bottle. It, it worked right out of the gates. There was a huge appetite for it. Josh, I got to ask you point blank, and I've asked Barry before, where is the money in this? Because you're going up against this broad mass cheapening of investment management in America. Obviously, Vanguard was one of the massive beneficiaries of this BlackRock with iShares. Uh, people tired of kind of paying Fidelity and, and T. Rowe and others 150 basis points to lag a, a very cut rate index fund, which Schwab and Fidelity and the others now kind of have to give you almost for free. So how do you sell the alpha, the handholding, the creativity uh, to convince people to pay you whatever it is, 100 basis points every year, as yeah, authentic as your work is, when you guys at the same time are preaching that you have to be maniacal about keeping costs low? Yeah, well, that's it's been a boon to us because we are able to construct portfolios with low-cost funds and ETFs um, and and do things in a tax-efficient way that 10 years ago would not have been possible. Not Almost none of this – I mean, Vanguard was around, but um, the iShares empire – um, the free funds at Fidelity, commission-free trading at our custodian, TD Ameritrade Institutional, none of that existed. So the lower costs for asset management get driven down, the more compelling our total offer is to clients. And I think what you're referring to is asset allocation. Asset allocation now is effectively free. Um, financial, you know, so it's so I don't know about cheapening being the right word. I just think streamlined and a lot of costs are being cut out of that process. And that's fantastic. Um, and so as a result, you could extrapolate and say the value of asset management is becoming worthless or, or cheap, but I don't really think that's what's going on. What's going on is that clients are more willing and interested in paying for the advice side than the asset allocation side. And that's the part that we're, we play. We don't run our own funds. So we're making use of all these extremely low-cost products and these extremely tax-efficient uh, products to build portfolios for people that's a part of our ongoing financial advice. Most of the value that we're delivering to clients is not buy this fund, sell that fund. Um, most of the value is in teaching people about what they should really be focused on, helping people meet their future liabilities um, by growing their their current um, their current assets and timing uh, their future cash flows with the things that are going to cost them something. And that's not a one-time thing where we set it up. That's an ongoing process. And then, of course, during times of market volatility, nobody cares how much they're paying for an ETF. What they want to know is, are they still invested in the right way? What should they be doing, if anything? Um, there's a lot else that goes into it. There's insurance uh, advice. There's tax advice. And we're delivering all of that, I think, including asset management, in an extremely uh, reasonably priced package. We're way lower than you know, a lot of solutions out there. Um, but I think part of what comes with that is saying if there's an opportunity for us to lower costs even further, we have to take it. How big is Ritholtz Wealth Management now? We're about 900 and I think 30 million in assets. We're over 500 households. Um, I think we're 27 employees of which 16 are client facing, meaning they're financial advisors or certified financial planners. Um, and then... Uh, I think what we've done that's different than maybe what my instincts would have been, and I've been, I've, this is I, is not something I came up with. Somebody, m multiple people have 
taught me this over the years. We've been extremely selective upfront about who we'll take on as clients. And what that's enabled us to do is run a business that's got a very low turnover rate, and it allows us to really focus on getting to know the families that we bring on. So what differs – So uh, yesterday I was at a luncheon. I met a, a nice young man from Morgan Stanley on the wealth management side. He will take money from anyone. I mean they have a minimum. It's like a million-dollar minimum, let's say, for his group. But if he's talking to someone that has $10 million of investable assets, he'll take a million dollars. Um, we won't do that. We will only take all of the wealth a client has, and we will only do this holistically. We, we want to advise on their total picture. And not everyone wants that, and we're happy to say no. Um, you know, or we'll even say, call us in two years when you realize <laughs> that financial planning and what we're offering is more important than pitting two or three money managers against each other to run that money. Um, the other thing that we're doing is we're working with households that are not yet at the point where they have a million dollars to invest. So we're doing that using the web, um, using automated asset allocation, and that's been an interesting business too. Josh, you guys uh, collectively, you and your diaspora of you know Ritholtz's boys and girls, have invaded every platform, maybe with the exception of my Tinder swipes. I see you everywhere. No, I'm in there. Uh, you're there too. You're on Grinder. You're on everything, right? I see you guys on YouTube, videotaping. Um, on LinkedIn, the podcasts. I see you on CNBC. Ritholtz is a beast of Bloomberg. He writes these great stories in, in Bloomberg opinion. I don't know if he's in the Washington Post anymore. I've become a huge Ben Carlson fan. You guys found uh, this kind he's of— He's better than me. Ben, this, ben is—so uh, let me just real this quick— This gem in the Midwest. I mean, out of ben, the ruins of General Motors comes Ben Carlson. This other guy, <laughs> Michael Batnick, Blair Ducanet in New Orleans. Like, this multi-headed beast that you built is kind of ubiquitous. Well, so we, we, we had a couple of realizations along the way. The first is that there's nothing wrong with advertising and paying for ads, but there's something more genuine in the connection you'll make with potential clients if they come to you because they agree with your philosophy and your and what you're saying and the way that you manage client accounts and the way that you talk about your investing process. Like if you get people to buy into what you do before they even become clients, they're going to be better clients. And the process of onboarding them and explaining the service to them is going to be that much easier and more. So we, we have educated clients because think about think about like how intellectually curious somebody has to be to be reading a financial blog. Like that's like a special person to begin with who's really at that level where they care that much to learn. So those are our clients, which of course makes our job tough because we have to answer a lot of intelligent, high-level questions that maybe other advisors don't. But so having Blair, um, and by the way, Blair uh, down in New Orleans is a CFA and a CFP, one of the brightest uh, young advisors in the in the industry and just, just all around awesome person. She um, is also a great writer and she's communicating her belief system on, on her blog. Ben Carlson out of Grand Rapids, Michigan is our head of institutional asset management in a prior uh, part of his career, he was advising a giant um, – it's not an endowment, but a giant fund for uh, a hospital group in Michigan as they were vetting hedge funds and all, and all these other asset management uh, strategies. So he's got that unique expertise, and I think he's the best financial writer of our generation. So we've – Barry and I have surrounded ourselves with people who are effective communicators, extremely bright, and extremely ethical and, and caring about – what they're saying and doing for the investing public. We are the opposite of the guy 
who goes on TV on a down day in the stock market and scares everyone and predicts 1987. Like whatever that garbage is, we are the opposite of that. And it's 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 working. People are people respect it and they like it. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Josh Brown, downtown Josh Brown, the reform broker. He is the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's also the author of the books Backstage Wall Street and Clash of the Financial Pundits. And he is rather ubiquitous. I'm honored that he took the time to schlep it over to NPR New York to join us. Uh, Sir, expand that concept a little bit. You talk about it publishing and being out there and and, and being authentic and hitting the submit button. Um, As a customer acquisition tool, it seems to be a great employee acquisition tool and that the people who've sought you guys out at conferences – um, is this empire kind of being built around, you could kind of, part of you, part of Ritholtz Wealth Management is a media empire, borderline journalistic, service journalism. And then there's the other side of it, which is, you know, fiduciary and handholding and asset management. So what's the question in there? <laughs> is it, I mean, lost, you can look at you guys me. and say you're media players. Oh, are we media? Asset no. Management players. So you know why we're not? Because number one, we're subject to regulatory, um, Oversight, and that's a good thing, by the way. Uh, we're if you read Barry Ritholtz's blog, and if you've been reading him for the last fifteen years, you know that he is pro-regulation, um, which, by the way, is pretty rare amongst people that work in financial services. Um, the R word is usually uh, something that has people uh, in fits, but we actually. So I, uh, one of the things that I, I, I say, and I, I really believe this, I wouldn't have a career if not for regulation, because no one would trust anyone. You know, if we had this like Wild West atmosphere where people could make spurious claims, people could guarantee future returns, people could lie about their performance, people could steal money from from um, their their clients in an, in an unfettered fashion. Like if that were the environment, nobody would ever call me from Colorado or from Arizona or from all the places we have clients. Nobody would ever say, hey, guys, I know you're in New York, but – um, I'm a big fan of what you're saying, and and I'd love to hear about your asset management or your your financial planning work. Like that just would not happen if there wasn't a level of public trust in the market. So um, regulation is good. Now, as content creators, back to your question, um, that limits us and you know what we can say and when we can say it and where we can say it. So we do play by a set of rules that a traditional media firm does not play by, and this is not to disparage any traditional media firms, and I'm a huge consumer of their content. I have subscriptions to everyone, um, paid subscriptions to everyone. But, you know, uh, just to make up a XYZ website that covers f- finance and is in the media, they can run these stories about this this uh, super successful hedge fund manager just bought his next stock. Click here to find out what it is. Or this guy says 1929 is around the corner. Not that we want to do that, but that I find is increasingly the way a lot of media companies are getting clicks and getting attention and getting ad dollars. We're not any we're, like we're doing the opposite of that. So I think we look very different than a lot of the traditional media, and that's okay. I think there's room for both news and opinions, and there is room for people that want to read clickbaity stuff, and then there's room for people that want to read 800 words on how interest rates impact muni bonds. And if you're interested in the latter, you're probably coming to one of our sites. Josh, there's still a chunk of chunk of chunk of change. I mean, trillions that's largely being ignored in the hands of brokerage firms, people who are only occasionally looking at their statements, who haven't scrutinized uh, comparative returns, risk-adjusted returns. 
I always wondered because I started my career, uh, you know, at Goldman Sachs 20 years ago. And I remember the big inducement was to get people to buy stocks and pay nice commissions because you had the IPO to dangle in front of them as kind of a, a carrot. I don't know why you would be involved with a full-service broker right now, unless they are beating the market or helping you holistically or really involved in you. I don't understand why you would take you know, $15 million to a Goldman Sachs. Are there special situations so I'll tell that they you, can get so I'll, you into? I'll tell you why. You're, a, you're a boomer, and it's just what you've always done, and you enjoy it. There's a recreational aspect to this. I, I, I have a friend who's, um, who's a financial advisor at, at – you know, one of the old wirehouses, and he's doing great, and his clients are doing great, and the economy's booming, and uh, his clients are like, you know, older guys, and they want to play, and he does a ton of syndicate, and I'm like, so like uh, secondaries, IPOs, like all that, he's like, yeah. I'm like, well, like, are you, are you like saying that you're going to beat the market by doing, you know, by, by getting them involved in all these deals? And he's like, no, I can't say that, um, and they're not even asking me that. They just want to be in it. They want the phone call. They want to know that, like, um, I don't know, when when Stitch Fix goes public and uh, and it's a hot deal, they want to know that, like, I can get them 500 shares. And, it's like, and, and so that's why they keep their entire giant portfolio with him. And it's like, fine. Like, no one's complaining. And, and I personally, Robin, I don't I don't see anything wrong with wealthy people using the markets in part for recreation. I just don't think that the results are going to be as good as what can be produced by, um, you know, solutions like what an RIA uh, would offer. Now, that being said, those firms that you mentioned are gradually uh, becoming more, when I say RIA, registered investment advisor, an independent firm, those firms that you mentioned are gradually becoming more like registered investment advisories, meaning they're doing less and less transactional business than ever, and they're doing more and more financial planning work and, and fee-based advisory work. Will they fully convert? Will they ever just completely get rid of the commission model and stop selling products? Probably not because that's the most profitable parts of their business and they're all publicly traded. So they, so the, the difference between a firm like mine, firm like mine answers to uh, clients. Um, at, you know, it's called a fiduciary duty. It's a law. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a, a choice. Um, a broker dealer has a lesser what's called a suitability duty, and who they really answer to as fiduciaries is shareholders. Um, and that's law too. So if you're a shareholder of a publicly traded bank that owns a giant brokerage firm, they have a fiduciary duty to you to, to boost profits. Unfortunately, boosting profits is not great for uh, the clients. You know, it's, this is it's what not... I never could understand in reading what you guys have, have put out consistently for over a decade and, and talking to people like you know, Jack Bogle and others who pushed for the fiduciary standard. If you and I walked from Seattle to Key West and polled every fifth person or every tenth person about what a broker has to and has does not have to disclose, or if you would just assume that a fiduciary standard is inherent, I mean, what fraction do you believe would, would, would say, no, I, I thought that that was the law, that they'd have all to put them. my interest first? The, all of them. And because they think it's like a lawyer, like... Look, they look at you as a professional and they think you're like an attorney where uh, the attorney can't violate attorney-client privilege. The attorney has to ser- you know, serve you if you're their client and can't double-cross you. Like they, they, just, uh, they just assume that you have to conduct yourself to some standard that's like the highest standard. Um, actually, in 2010, there was a study where they asked multimillionaires 
So not even like regular people, but like experienced investors who had a lot at stake and had a lot of experience dealing with financial advisors. And they asked, does your uh, broker have a fiduciary uh, duty to you? And 93% said yes. And of course, the answer was no. I don't know if it would still be 93% today, but I would say that the vast majority of people just assume that a broker is treating them with, with that standard of care because they don't understand the difference and they don't know the difference between suitability and fiduciary. I'm actually, uh, Robin, I'm softening my my uh, rhetoric on that subject. I actually think it's fine for there to be uh, two standards of care. I'm, I'm over it. I know it's not going to happen under this administration. In fact, they're rolling back financial regulation because what I see is the people who would be best served by this tend to be the people who are like, regulations are bad. Like it, it's just this weird thing where people are rooting for the wolf to come into their own sheep pen. So if that's how they want to do it right now and they didn't learn enough the hard way during the last decade, maybe they have to learn it again. So I'm like, I'm over it. I'm not out there crusading anymore. I'm too busy. Is it fair or unfair to declare this, alas, the lost decade for hedge funds? I keep reading about them lagging. Uh, even though you're not necessarily supposed to compare them to the S&P 500, it's a very easy bogey. Um, the, the captains of yeah, the universe a are having that's a, harder, a harder time charging 2 and 20 or worse. Yeah, it's a, you're not supposed to compare them to the S&P 500, except that that's how they sell themselves when the S&P 500 underperforms. That's exactly how— And I always how, thought that. It's a heads-I-win-tails-you-lose proposition. Don't compare us to, to the S&P 500 in a bull market, but in a bear market, we will— inundate you with literature about how you need to hedge your portfolio because of how bad the S&P 500 has been. So you that said wealthy, you you posited a few minutes earlier that wealthy investors do have a, a, a tolerance for recreation and they want to be in it and they want to play it and the they only want to be in the fast Robin, lane. it's the only explanation I could find for the way assets are allocated. There were $37 trillion uh, up for grabs for the wealth management industry. Nobody has scale. The biggest firms have just a, a chunk of, a, a very small chunk of that. Um, there are new funds launching all the time, new adventures to be had. The only explanation I can come up with is that people treat it like uh, gambling or people have enough money. They're not so worried about underperforming. They want to take that risk that they'll underperform so that they can own the hot fund or the hot stock or whatever. And again, I'm not here to scold anyone. Um, I happen to not cater to that clientele. I used to. Um, I don't. I don't work with people that are you know, looking at how the market did each day and then comparing how they did. But Josh, I, I got to tell you, the people I've seen who are hedge fund capable clients, they scrutinize returns. I don't understand. You they, know, obsess, if, if they this, obsess over it. So so how can it be that this has lasted, that a lot of these firms like Bill Ackman's firm, I don't want to single anybody out, but there has been this perception that it's been a long era of mediocrity and underperformance. And when I do talk to hedge people, they say, we'll be vindicated in the next 2007, 2008. They you will, know? because they'll go down less than the market, and that's the story they'll tell. They will be vindicated. It doesn't mean that anyone needs to do that. And, and you're telling me that you can charge 2 and 20 or 3 and 30 or beyond that just on that insurance pitch? What you have to understand is that there are intermediaries that are recommending these vehicles. So it's 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 not wealthy people calling up a one eight hundred number at a hedge fund and saying charge me two and twenty. What's actually happening is consulting firms or um, wealth managers or whatever speaking to clients and saying, okay, your family has amassed fifty million dollars. The responsible thing is to take five or ten million of that, a percentage of the total, 
and put it into what they call non-correlated or alternative asset management. And what that means is in English is private equity, venture, hedge fund, and some of it works. It's not all bad or good. It's like this is the real world. There are some incredible hedge funds out there that have had huge returns. So those are the examples that are pointed at in order to sell all the rest of the funds that may one day turn into those huge winners. So what you're basically saying is you don't need or, or you're, when you're a mid, an intermediary or a middle person in this equation, you're saying to someone, okay, most of your portfolio should be straight up stocks and bonds. And then you have real estate outside of this. And like you're diversified. And then here's this last chunk. The problem with that last chunk is, A, it's mostly unnecessary. Like rather than try to hedge your entire portfolio because you can never really do that, why don't you just take less risk? And so that's our approach and it works. Um, but – you know, they're basically saying like, oh, these are these are these are vehicles that will earn you a return when the markets aren't giving people returns. So like you'll always be making money. Like that's the fantasy. And frankly, of course it doesn't work that way. Um works that way for some people. You don't know in advance which funds will do that. You don't know in advance which funds will actually blow up worse than the overall market because all they were doing was taking bigger bets. Like you just there's no way to know. No consulting firm is able to prove that they can do that. No fund of funds is able to prove that they can select winning managers ahead of time. It's just, like if you think stock picking is hard, now imagine trying to pick the people who are going to pick the stocks. So to me, and I've seen enough, 20 years doing this, to me, it's not an endeavor worth pursuing, but I understand why people do, and I don't think it's the end of the world. You're talking about people who are set for life. So if they want to make some of those bets, why shouldn't they? On the subject of non-correlating assets and a lost decade, it's also been a lost decade for international, whether you want to look at developed markets or emerging markets, which they were. If I, I'm old enough to remember when these things completely smoked us at the turn of the century, I mean, coming out of the dot-com crash. Um, and that just has not worked since the worst of the crisis. And a meaning-of-life question that I've posed to various people, I know Ben has written about it. We've had Jason Zweig on the show and asked him about it. There are purists out there that say, really, the best you can do in this is to invest in the S&P 500. I believe Jack Bogle himself says you don't have to build a better mousetrap than that. Don't be too pretty. That buys you enough international exposure um, in the UK, in Canada, in emerging markets, in China, in Brazil. But there is a whole other school that says, no, you have to be granular. You have to go and well, buy all right, these things. So, so I don't want to be too doctrinaire about this, but if you're saying um, – you just need the S&P 500 what you're, or you just need U.S. stocks. Let's, let's make it simpler. What you're saying is that what's gone on over the last century is exactly what the next century will look like. And you're welcome to say that, but you can't say it and say I guarantee it. So you, you can't be – because think about someone investing in, in British securities. They used to be called consoles. They were more like bonds than stocks. But think about somebody saying that in the late 1800s, uh, I will only invest in, in – you know, uh, British instruments because Britain at that time was America before America was America in terms of its scale and its and its power around the world and its economy and its um, corporate development. So if you only if you only said or if you if you made that statement, then you would have been, uh, you know, or your your heirs would have been, I should say, uh, surprised at what went on in the 19th century. So you can make the bet that the United States has the best system of laws um, you know, it, it's got the best system of governance. It's got the most developed and liquid markets uh, in the world. And it's it's the envy of corporations all over the place. All of those statements are true. 
Do you want to bet that that will be true forever? Or do you want to say, you know, it's possible that there will be economic growth and, and winners elsewhere also. And I want to have the ability to know that I'm in position to, to have some of those returns should they develop. And your example about the decade from 2000 to 2009, so that is the lost decade for the U.S. stock market. Um, factoring in dividends, I think you were flat. So you did terribly. Um, and inflation actually went up. So you actually, you actually did worse than you think in real terms. Um, during that period of time, U.S. REITs did well. U.S. small caps did well. Like a lot of things here outperformed the S&P 500. Um, and then when you look international, you see a ton of outperformance. You see that Europe did better. You see that Asia did better. The BRIC countries, um, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, did really, really well. So if you had, Robin, a diversified portfolio and included fixed income, that blunted the fact that the S&P 500 gave you nothing for 10 years, and that made you money. Um, so we will have an environment like that again. I don't know when it starts. I don't know the, the breadth and the length of that period of time. But if you're a diversified investor, what you're essentially doing is rebalancing away from things that have worked a lot and adding some of your capital to things that have not worked as well. And then when you get that mean reversion, and again, it's not guaranteed and there's no timetable, but when it comes, you will outperform um, theoretically the person that only picks one country or only picks one class of stock or whatever. So um, diversification's got benefits on both the upside and the downside. Now, the problem is, just wrap this up, being diversified as a financial advisor, diversifying your clients means always having to say you're sorry. Mm. <laughs> and But also it means never having to say you're sorry. So there's always going to be an asset class in a globally diversified portfolio that disappoints. And let me, let me, let me tell you, we've had a, a great uh, guest on the show before, uh, Mike Beal from Davenport, pretty much runs investments at Davenport Company, and his clients have called this diversification. Go ahead. Of course, until, until it doesn't. So, so maybe one year, so, so let's say you've got um, fixed income and stocks in a portfolio, and then one year, junk bonds blow up. So high-yield uh, high yield, uh, corporate bonds, which let's say a typical advisor has as somewhere between a 3 and 10% portion of their total portfolio and a much smaller portion if you just look at it as part of the fixed income allocation. So one year, they have a really bad year. And a client says, well, why do I have any high-yield bonds? Why do I need this? Well, the answer is that next year is not necessarily going to look like this year. And we're adding to that as we take money from whatever asset class just had amazing performance. And maybe in that given year, it's mid-cap stocks in the United States, or it's European small caps or whatever. So um, what you're really what you're really saying with a diversified portfolio is I am willing to accept the humility that I do not have the ability to know what the best and worst asset classes are going to be for the year 2019. How could I? And I also know emphatically that while I don't know, no one else knows either. So here's what I want to do. I want to allocate my portfolio based on the premise that things are going to happen that are unforeseeable. Um, but that risk will be rewarded. So you have to go into this with the belief at, at, at the very base of, of everything that anyone says. You have to just at least have this basic belief. Risk is rewarded by capital markets. If you don't believe markets function and if you don't believe that risk and reward are related, then I can't even have a conversation with you. So you have to start with, with that premise. Yes, I understand this idea 
that taking less risk means less potential upside. Yes, I agree. I also agree. If I take risks that others are unwilling to take, I'm not promised higher returns, but I give myself a higher probability of earning those returns because I was willing to bear that risk that others would be. Now, there are intelligent ways to take those risks. There are ways to make decisions about how much risk and how little risk, but you have to at least have that premise. So I submit to you, owning stocks in places like India and developing Africa and uh, and China and Russia, um, of course, there are elevated risks. You have to then agree, but I'm being paid in potential future returns because I'm willing to take those risks. Full disclosure, listening to Josh Brown, the reform broker. He's joining us from NPR New York City. Uh, Josh, uh, in the 10 minutes or so that we have left, I'd love to go free skate with you. I mean, <laughs> you tell me what you'd like to talk about. One thing that's always, it's like an evergreen thing, and people might come up to you and say, Josh, does China keep you up at night? I can't help but ask yes. people that. Because take emerging markets. Yes, it does. It does keep you up at Everything night. Everything keeps it, me up For at example, night. if somebody— I'm, 40, I, I'm 41 would, years old. I don't sleep. <laughs> I went with a frontier market investor to Peru, and Peru was a great story, and it was finally stabilizing and offering great risk-adjusted returns after a period of, of, of long irrelevance, and copper was working out for them. But other critics kind of rightly point out that Peru would not be working if China were to have a hard landing. Peru is only as good as China. Brazil, for all of its political volatility, is only as good as China. Soya beans in Argentina, the, the buyer of size is China. And China, as Jim Chanos has said on this show in the past, could well be the largest asset bubble and CapEx bubble in history. So um, I, I, I know Jim Chanos, and I, and I, and I respect his, his point of view, and I, I would never um, just outright disagree with something he says. My argument to that is markets every day are pricing and repricing what they think those risks are. And it doesn't mean so, – so the deification of markets is not a direction I'm going to go here. I understand that markets are wrong all the time too. So, that, so saying that markets understand these risks and challenges is not the same as saying markets are always right, of course. However, they're fairly efficient um, and when they get things wrong, of course, that happens. But overall, I think people understand that – there are huge risks that are related to China and ex countries that export to China. Why do you think the United States stock market sells at 18 times earnings and the Chinese stock market sells at nine times earnings? Like, it's obvious that people understand that these these things could potentially go wrong. Um, and then when you look at Latin American countries and you look at um, you look at some of the peripheral European countries that have debt on and off uh, sovereign and, and corporate debt issues. They're all priced substantially lower than U.S. stocks are. So, of course, markets are not stupid. Think about it. You, you have hundreds of millions of people participating. Um, people are rational. People are wise. They get crazy, carried away in both directions, both too optimistic and too pessimistic. But then somewhere in the middle, those averages are shaped. So could things go wrong in China? Absolutely. Could markets be forced to reprice a whole host of assumptions, not only for Chinese equities, but for the ramifications all over the world in currencies and commodities. Absolutely. But this idea that you're going to, A, get those reactions right as predictions ahead of time, and B, be able to time it, like know that something is trouble and then know exactly when that trouble is going to strike. I find it like almost infantile that there are like people who walk around and profess that they'll be able to do that. It's almost, it's, it's almost like saying I have magical powers. Not only do I know exactly what's going to happen, 
I also know what the reaction will be because I can read the minds of six billion people on this planet. It, and I okay, are you smoking crack? You obviously cannot do that. So what's the answer then, Josh? If no one knows what's going to happen, what's the the answer is to build portfolios that are durable enough to survive even low probability events like crashes, and they are very low probability events, by the way. And if you're going to be tactical, meaning if you're going to do something that has you selling out of a market or going to cash or lowering your risk at a certain juncture, write the rules in advance. Don't wake up like it's an accident and then say, what am I going to do with my portfolio today? Make a decision that you're going to run a rules-based portfolio You're not going to let your emotions override the rules that you set and decide on what those rules are going to be based on evidence, based on data. What normally happens when I do this or when someone does this? What usually occurs after this happens? And then look no further than the last two or three years about how sure you are when you try to guess what the crowd's reaction will be. Because I seem to remember Wall Street being extremely confident that the election of Donald Trump would mean a a huge stock market sell-off here and abroad. Well, the exact opposite happened. We had a massive stock market rally in the United States, and we even had a massive stock rally in England right after Brexit. Look at the chart from July. None of these things were predicted by, by the consensus. So don't delude yourself that you can guess the risk in China any better than the overall markets can, because you can't. Now, alack, the tables have turned, Charlie Murphy. What should I be asking you? Wow. Um, I think I've said a lot. I don't know. Well, you haven't said what enough. Are you, well, like, what are your listeners most curious about away from, you know, plain vanilla stock market stuff, do you think? Anything economic, anything cryptocurrency? Like, what? Like, it is like, a total Rorschach for you. What should they be listening to? What should they be interested in? Um, you, you, you have your finger on the pulse of this, both at CNBC, both in the, the amount of feedback you get back. I mean, you have more than a million Twitter followers now. I think you and I had chicken wings when you had 15,000 Twitter followers. Yeah. So, you know, I really think that everyone right now is consumed by politics and with good reason. There's a lot at stake. Um, and, and you know, the, the midterms and um, there are also a lot of new policies that are now working their effects on the markets from tariffs to tax reform or tax cuts, we'll call it. Um, so I think that's where most people are focused. And I'm not saying that's inappropriate. Um, I'm probably focused on that stuff, too. It'll be interesting to see what happens after the results in the midterms. Um, do people remain as obsessed with politics as they seem to have been over the last couple of years? Well, what or... about the obsession with the Federal Reserve? Because we have had this 35-year um, golden age for bond investors and junk has worked and treasuries have worked. And we're still, even though we're at full employment and a stock market near records, we are at maybe half the interest rate that we had before the financial crisis. Well, I don't really see as much of an obsession with the Fed um, on Wall Street as I did post-crisis. Post-crisis, it seemed like they were the only actors and, you know, on the stage. And even if they coughed in, in a funny way, it would generate a thousand articles and, and, and comments. I don't really see the Fed as being that central in most people's minds. Of course, it's important. But it's not as obsessed over as it was. If you're asking me about interest rates and bonds, our comment to clients is that while short term it's not great to have um, to have bonds drop as yields rise, uh, because of course you own bonds primarily for the income and preservation of capital versus what you're doing in stocks. Um, longer term, it's actually better to have higher rates because the only way you're going to make any money. If you think that inflation is 
running somewhere between two and two and a half right now uh, percent, which I think is reasonable um, overall inflation, then it's actually a good thing that you can earn, um, let's say, three percent on a on a ten year treasury um, and and above four percent on a on a twenty plus year treasury. That's actually not a negative. So it's not great if you're going to buy your first home because now your mortgage prices are higher. It's not necessarily great if you're looking to do a home equity loan because your your rate that you've got to pay. But is it better for your portfolio that rates have risen? Maybe it hurts a little bit on stock valuations, but it helps a little bit on current income. And what you don't hear right now are people screaming about how the Fed is punishing savers. Hmm. Remember that whole nonsense? I talked about it all the time. Well, it, it was never true. Because savers also own stocks. 401k investors own a ton of stocks. You know, I would push back on that, though, in older people who were completely shell-shocked coming out of it, who didn't feel like they were in the position to own stocks or didn't understand treasuries. This is why they require— This is why— That uh, was financial repression. That was financial repression. If your bank thinks, like I say before, it's doing you a favor if you go into B of A and want to give them $100,000 and it's not interest bearing I mean, who is that helping? Yeah. So, so Robin— it boosted it boosted home prices into a death spiral for real estate. Um, it put people in a position where they could launch a whole host of free services. Um, and this the new economy we have now is built on companies that were able to raise venture and 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 uh, equity financing and build these brand new business models. It gave birth to uh, almost everything that people are spending their time doing these days. I really, uh, I really think it allowed corporations that otherwise would have been in big trouble, maybe gone under, maybe laid off tens of thousands of people. It allowed them to refinance their debt so that they could stay in business and not fire everyone um, and not destroy their shareholders' value. It, it cannot be looked at as in a vacuum. Oh, I can't make money on my CD. First of all, the world doesn't promise you a risk-free rate of return. You don't. You're not promised anything. Is number one. Number two. Um, the vast majority of people who are contributing to 401ks, and there are now uh, th- there there are now many more of them than there were even pre-crisis, benefited substantially from low rates in the form of both bonds rising, real estate investment trusts rising, stock prices rising. So it was not true financial repression; it was just a difference in what you can have risk-free and what you had to take some risk for. Um, but the world doesn't promise you anything. So I think people need to grow up a little bit. Um, and now you can earn money um, in, in, in a relatively risk-free uh, manner. You can earn money on on uh, one to three-month T-bills are paying something like 1.8%. Don't spend in, it in all a in one place. Well, but the point is it's not zero. It's not zero. Now, are you really earning anything uh, after inflation? Probably not, which is why we are an economy where, that requires some risk. In order to get ahead, um, so this is why God has sent financial pl- uh, planners and financial advisors into the world. So, if there was an older person who needed to live on the money right now uh, after the crisis, it's terrible, of course, and they had to withdraw money from an account. So, they should not be taking stock risk, obviously. But if there's a, a wealthy older person who was not invested in stocks mainly for the reason that they were scared. That is why people hire financial advisors. Financial advisors illustrate the risks, the potential rewards, the trade-off between taking risk and, and having uh, a future income. That's what we do for a living. And it's hard work and it's very emotional and it requires empathy. It's, I would say empathy is like one of the top three uh, prerequisites for the job. But clients who have financial advisors were not sitting in cash. 
if they could afford to be in investing and if they had a financial plan that required them to invest. Um, I think it's something like a quarter of the people who make it to 65 right now are going to make it into their 90s. A quarter. So one in four people who are what they would, we would say used to be retirement age might have 30 years ahead of them. So forget about feeling like taking risk. Have no choice. Need to have money in the future. You, I, you, could, you, could, you could look at it like, oh, well, that's a shame. It shouldn't be that way. I can only deal with the world the way it is. Josh Brown, if I'd come back to you in 2008 in the teeth of this crisis, financial crisis and family crisis and job crisis, and told you that you and I would be talking in a little bit around a decade hence, and there would be GMC and Hampton Inn banner ads on a Joshua Brown site called The Reformed Broker, what would you have said to me? I would have said, pass the buffalo wings. You're crazy. Josh Brown, I can't thank you enough. CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, the reform broker, wubba, 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 downtown Josh Brown. You are always welcome on this show. This is your hat trick appearance. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Robin. All right. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us on NPR One and on iTunes at link fulldradio.com. Additionally, we will be up and running on WCVE 88.9 FM starting in the new year. All episodes, by the way, are also up on Facebook.com slash Foldy Radio. We are no-load fiduciaries hawking risk-adjusted 144A portable alpha products to impressionable ears across the planet. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Yeah.